This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Safety in Waikiki is still very much top of mind. Police have yet to arrest anyone for the shooting this weekend outside a bar on Lure Street. Here to talk about law enforcement efforts is HPR Sabrina Bowden. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So identifying areas of high crime, arresting crime doers, and following through with strict prosecution are of ways that the uh, few programs on Oahu are trying to reduce crime. The Waikiki Safe and Sound program was launched last September and has led to more than 450 arrests in the area, according to Honolulu prosecuting attorney Steve Alm. Safe and Sound is a program that is meant to reduce crime by finding habitual criminals and also getting help to those on the streets who may need it, whether that's uh, mental health services or finding housing. We work with HPD on that because they can help identify. Or residents in uh, Waikiki can identify who are the frequent flyers, the ones who you know are, are committing crime regularly. Uh, and causing a tremendous drain on HPD resources, uh, court resources. But we've discovered many of them have substance abuse problems. So unless you deal with that underlying problem, it's not going to stop. So we recognize that. You know, we're, tr- we're going to try to help a bunch of those folks get help. But HPD has identified people selling drugs in that area near the pavilions. They've arrested them for that. So, And one of the beauties of uh, Safe and Sound Waikiki or Weed and Seed is it's not a here today, gone tomorrow effort. It is week after week, month after month, year after year. And Waikiki Safe and Sound is modeled off of the Chinatown Weed and Seed program that first started in the 90s and was kicked back up in July 2021. The idea is there, there's something about certain places where people get in trouble, and that's because maybe they've got friends there who get in trouble, or that's who, where their dealer lives, or whatever. So first in Chinatown, we would ask people to get put on, given a geographic restriction, which means they can't come back into that area. And what we discovered when we did this 20 years ago is this crime did not translate somewhere else because there's something about Chinatown and Waikiki that people will commit crime there where they won't 10 blocks away in a, you know, in a residential neighborhood, like in Chinatown. People may commit a crime there. They're not going to commit the same crime five blocks up. And what uh, Prosecutor Alms was talking about is that uh, geographical restrictions, but they don't always work. Uh, you can't do it for somebody who lives and works in the area. It's a condition of parole. And it also wouldn't work for somebody who gets time served. So that's where finding and providing social services come in. Maybe they get arrested, and if they can make bail, then they're given a court date. If they can't make bail, they spend one night at HPD's cell block, come to court the next morning, plead guilty, get credit for time served, and walk out of court. No supervision, nothing. And we would really like to uh, have them put on probation. Then they can get services from the court, mental health services, maybe substance abuse. Yeah, they they really don't want this revolving door syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's pointless. Yeah, and the program combines the efforts of law enforcement, prosecution, as well as community engagement, and that's the really important part. So Jennifer Nakayama is the executive director of the Waikiki Business Improvement District, and she's been in the role since 2017. She oversees cleaning crews as well as homeless outreach programs and working with business owners. And this is her last week on the job before she moves to do the same type of work in Oklahoma City. I sat down with her to reflect on the Waikiki bid, on how much it's changed, uh, how Safe and Sound has become a key partnership and effort. I think that public safety will continue to be a growing piece that is important for uh, the Waikiki bid and and my successor as well. To look at ways that a public-private partnership can continue, I think that the the real huge advantage of the Waikiki bid being in place is that it bridges over and knocks down the walls between a private business and public government and really, you know, takes the hat off of the individual uh, commercial business and says, 
we're part of a community. We're part of the Waikiki District, and what can we do to better that for everyone, for the employees, for the residents, for the visitors? And you know, I think Waikiki gets gets a knock uh, oftentimes about being focused solely on visitors and tourists and things. But it's about the the jobs. It's about the the workers. It's about all that every everybody that comes to work each and every day here. And one of the great things about the Safe and Sound Waikiki is that the Kosasa Foundation has gifted them $100,000 for a Safe and Sound coordinator, and there are matching funds from the city, so that's $200,000 to help, and that will go to this coordinator who will assist in homeless outreach and second chance uh, job opportunities. Yeah, and I know you know there's always been the need for uh, cameras, you know, in mm-hmm. the area. I think there was just an investment recently in Waikiki to put up cameras like on Kohio. And there's also that same investment in Chinatown. They were talking about that, or I guess the city was talking about that a couple of weeks ago when um, Mayor Bill and Girardi opened up additional funding to keep the Chinatown task force up and going for through the next year. Yeah, but kudos uh, you know, to all the efforts. And I know Chinatown is looking better and, and mm-hmm. folks are really uh, uh, you know, cleaned it up and, and I think feel much safer walking around there. So mm-hmm. we just need to work on Waikiki. (laughs) But thanks so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We have been chatting with HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. is what aquaculture generated for Hawaii in 2021. That's more than coffee or macadamia nuts, the cash crops associated with the islands. Coming off the year of the limu, the commercialization of Hawaii seaweed looks promising, not so much for human consumption, but for cattle. It's fed to cows in order to cut the methane gas that cows burp. It sounds wacky, but early research shows it works. We highlighted the startup company Symbrosia yesterday. Today, we focus on a second business, Blue Ocean Barns. We toured the facility at the Natural Energy Laboratory in Kona recently with CEO Joan Selwyn. The seaweed is sustainably harvested, then propagated in huge tanks where they tumble and grow. It's bubbling around just as it would in tide pools or in, you know, the shallow areas out in the ocean. So it's experiencing the sunlight it loves, the seawater that has been pumped from the ocean. So it loves that, too. So it's just, you know, thriving and growing and propagating. And as it does, we harvest it and uh, allow room for more to come behind it and grow. The company Blue Ocean Barns recently announced an infusion of $20 million to help it scale up. We talked to uh, Selwyn about the investment and the promise of an industry where demand is not likely to be a problem. It's an affirmation that what we're doing will have a market, will have a need, and will be really a way for Hawaii to be participating in the new economy, the new low emission economy. So what we're doing here is taking tiny samples sustainably from the ocean of a limu and growing it out and just really providing it with growth conditions it just naturally loves. And so it does its thing. If we provide it with the sunshine and the seawater, the nutrients, the motion of the water, it does its thing. And when it does, it propagates and grows and splits and sloughs off new growth that then spawns even more growth We can get it to a scale at which it can be harvested and dried, milled, and fed to cattle. And when it is fed to cattle as part of their diet, a very small part of their diet, it almost completely shuts down their emission of methane gas, which is an enormously potent contributor to climate change. And prior to really finding this Hawaii-based limu, as kind of a gas X for cows, a Beano for cows, there really wasn't any good solution at all for shutting down methane gas production in cattle, which is just a natural process of their digestion. So 
we're working closely with a couple of very, very large food companies that use a lot of dairy products and a lot of meat products in what they put on shelves for consumers. They're really concerned about their responsibility to deliver those products in a really sustainable and responsible way. And so they're partnering directly with us and investing in us so that we can scale this up and make this limu uh, available to cows all around the world. And so who are your contracts with now? I mean, where is this in use? Yeah. So several of our customers have made announcements about their use of this. One is Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Another is Strauss Family Creamery, which is a small California dairy. Um, Clover Sonoma Dairy, which is kind of all over the West. So several people are using this and, and are announcing it. Others are kind of in a wait and see where they're using it, but they're not yet ready to lend their name uh, to the solution until they are comfortable that it's a good fit within their operation. As the seaweed gets harvested and processed, I mean, you develop it into different forms uh, so that you can you know, add this to the, the, the cattle feed? The primary form is as a powder. So it's minimally processed and used as a whole plant. You know, it's not extracted. We just dry the whole plant and crush it up and it becomes a powder, which just gets added into feed like a lot of other powders. C cattle operations are adding amino acids or, or minerals, whatever, in that form and ours is just one more ingredient. So how do the cows like it? Cows like our seaweed, which is grown in tanks. Some of the ocean-grown seaweed that has been fed in university trials is a little high in iodine and it is a little metally. And so cows have shown that they will only eat so much of that. But in the two trials that have used our material grown here in Hawaii, the cows have gobbled it up. And so, uh, gosh, as far as this plan then to scale up, you're hoping then to convince other businesses that this is the, the green thing to do, right? I mean, the responsible thing to do. Mm -hmm. The most likely customers for our product don't need to be convinced because what we're finding is that there's a large number of companies, Catherine, that have made really bold announcements about what they're going to achieve in terms of emissions reductions by 2025 or by 2030. And companies who have announced really bold targets like 30% reductions or 50 or net zero, if they have cattle in their supply chain, they just can't get anywhere near those reductions unless they're really addressing the problem of methane gas that is produced during digestion. And this is by far the best way to do that. So we actually do not consider demand a problem. Supply is what we're all about and scale because um, a number of corporations are looking at their prospects for hitting their targets and see no way unless we partner with them. So we do have plans right here in Hawaii to scale up and to uh, operate a, a large plant here. In addition, we know that we need to be near to farms that are using the material so that we don't you know, do a great job for the environment by reducing methane, but then also pollute the environment through all of our transportation. So we're at the same time growing in Baja, California and in San Diego, which is cutting the transportation a great deal. We will probably ultimately have these kinds of farms coastal throughout the world, you know, in North Africa or in Chile, those kinds of places so that we can serve very large cattle markets that are near those farms. Are there any other international companies that have been eyeing your product or, you know, where this is in use? Right now, we all of our customers are based in the United States. There's a lot of demand in the United States. There are 100 million cattle uh, that need to be fed here. So we got our hands full. Some of our customers are global, and they see doing the United States as the first step towards their corporate responsibility and then moving to South America and Europe and their other markets. What about locally? Locally is so exciting. I'm glad you asked. We're currently gearing up to, starting in January, feeding our product to the Hawaii Island Goat Dairy. They will be our first local customer and they're tremendously excited about what we can do to reduce the gas from their goats, which are also ruminants. They have the same digestive system as cattle and sheep, bison, etc. And those goats are emitting methane gas and Hawaii Island Goat Dairy is committed to driving that way down. 
hooray, because I have noticed an explosion of goats on this island, and I was really kind of shocked to see the numbers and was hoping that somehow we were putting them to good use, either as a food product or, you know, that, that somebody was using them, you know, because we talk about sustainability here, and that's all part of the picture. Exactly. And I think there's a use both for goat milk and cheese, etc. And also goats are known to eat grass and other uh, weeds and whatever and maintain, you know, a low level of forage in areas where it, it otherwise might get out of control. A number of industry groups are, are watching us closely and are supportive. Uh, the American Feed Industry Association is really interested in, in our role as a feed additive and supplement. The dairy industry is, is all in. Uh, U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef is all in. All of us here live here. We are all here to stay. And we're really proud of what this state is positioned to do for the environment. The methane gas from cattle particularly is one of the big unsolved problems of the environment. You know, we think we know what we need to do with renewable energy and with uh, vehicles, et cetera. But the cow is a big problem. With 1.5 billion cows in the world, they emit as much gas as all cars. And so to have a solution coming out of this wonderful state that can be exported and propagated and, and spread through the world really puts Hawaii in a great position to be a leader in sustainability in a way that before this was unsolved. What we're growing here is just like alfalfa or corn or, or hay or grasses that cows eat. We're growing a photosynthesizing organism. We're drying it and mixing it in their feed. It couldn't actually be more natural. It's, it's, perfectly, it's perfectly suited to the job that we're putting it to. Of course, I do hear lots of jokes. I hear a number of mothers say, if I fed this to my 13-year-old son, would it maybe help out? And unfortunately, since her son only has one stomach, he's not a ruminant. He doesn't have a rumen, so he's not really able to, uh, to process this seaweed but neither is he emitting methane that we need to worry about. I think people are looking for a Beano for cows or a, a Gas X for cows, and here it is. I do know a lot of people ask me, are you sure it's burps and not the other end? Mm -hmm. And I can assure them that it is burps. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned, this all of the fermentation of grass and the creation of methane is in the first of the four stomachs. So the gas doesn't have a chance to get through the other four stomachs and then through the small intestine, large intestine. 95% of the gas that is emitted by a, a ruminant, a goat or a cow, comes right out the mouth. Okay, it's belching. It's belching. <laughs> uh, that was Joan Selwyn of Blue Ocean Barns talking about its approach to commercializing limukohu to help cut the methane gas generated by the cattle industry. During the pandemic, while many industries were forced to cut workers, many of the uh, aquaculture businesses at the Natural Energy Lab kept people employed. Today on The Daily, over the past few decades, Southwest Airlines has transformed how Americans fly and in the process has become a revered corporate brand. Until that is, it melted down over the holidays. We look at what went wrong. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the tall order for preschool construction. Cassie Ordonio joins us with the story. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and I noticed that the, uh, the School Facilities Authority had a meeting this morning. Uh, but yeah, they've got to hurry up. Uh, they've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> They definitely do. They have um, until June 24, 2024, that's next year, and there's only three people so far, including the executive director, uh, Keone Farias, um, to get the job done. But um, that's $200 million they need to build about 200 preschool classrooms. Yeah, and so uh, I understand that uh, uh, you got a good snapshot of, of the path forward, uh, you know, at uh, one of the uh, finance meetings earlier this week. 
Yeah, so yesterday, uh, the School Facilities Authority, or the head of the School Facilities Authority, met with the House Finance Committee yesterday morning, um, and they're asking them to create three additional uh, positions to help them get the job done, but there's only three people so far, um, so... Um, Chad Keone pleaded his case yesterday, um, hoping to get those positions established. As um, a fact, as a matter of fact, they only ha- they barely have a working website and the support staff to fully operate. Let alone, um, they only have a temporary office building in Hilo. And they've got to get this money spent by the end of what next summer. Yeah, and. Um, that, that's that's a huge job, especially for only three people. And um, the executive director, he was appointed by the former governor, David Ige, in March, but started working in May. But he told me just yesterday that the real work didn't actually start until September. So they have about 18, about 18 months um, to spend this money. But um, talking to uh, Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke, uh, she said she wasn't as worried as they have a spending plan. Um, and uh, we're anticipating for that spending plan to come out on January 17 on how they will spend that $200 million. Um, but it's a, it's a wait and see. So that's going to come out the opening, uh, opening session, the first day? Yeah, around there. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, what are the other challenges that they've got? The other challenges that they have is just mostly the lack of staff. Um, uh, like I said earlier, there's only three people who are working on this project um, to spend that money. And the only thing is once the deadline hits next year, um, there there's two possibilities. Um, that money could lapse over or um, Sylvia Luke told me that uh, they could ask for an extension, uh, but she'd have to go before the lawmakers. So are these brand new preschool classrooms that they've got to create or can some of the money go to, you know, renovate the old ones? Um, The money is actually supposed to go to already existing public school classrooms. Um, So the school facilities authority already identified about maybe 60 sites. Um, Some of it is already within the existing DOE campuses and then others are in the public charter schools. But these funds are specifically only to be used for existing public school classrooms or they need to they still need to identify sites to build um, brand new classrooms from scratch. Okay, and I know it probably includes things like the, the the tiny uh, toilets <laughs> uh, for the little ones, as yeah. opposed to the adult sized <laughs> bathrooms. Uh, but yeah, that they really do have a, a tall order. Uh, it's a lot of money to spend, but gosh, I don't know how they're going to do it. And it's a huge job for only three people. Um, so I can, uh, looking at that meeting yesterday, um, Chad Keone Farias keeps underscoring that they need the additional help, um, including um, they want uh, to create a position for a project manager, a planner, and a budget analyst. But um, even with three more people, it's still a wait and see to see if they get the job done before the deadline. It really is literally a race against the clock for them. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of construction, a lot of permits, you know, uh, they have to be approved. Uh, A lot of procurement laws you've got to, you know, follow. But, yeah, that is really a big job. Most definitely. So we'll see um, in the coming future. And I'm also um, looking for a follow-up on that spending plan that they'll have coming out in January 17. Okay. All right. Well, we will be watching. Uh, But thanks so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. All right. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. Uh, You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. Fresh Air, champion distance runner Lauren Fleshman. She's now a coach and activist working to get the sports world to stop practices that encourage girls to become anorexic and stop menstruating, disrupting the hormonal function essential to building healthy bones and a healthy body. Her new memoir is called Good for a Girl. Join us. 
beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Kamoela Philharmonic on Hawaii Island, showcasing its youth concerto competition winners, a new work by Hawaii-based composer Erman Sewell, and more January 22nd at Kahilu Theater, kamoelaphil.org. Methamphetamine continues to be the deadliest drug in Hawaii. It accounts for the majority of overdose deaths in 2021, according to a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Meth addiction has plagued our island since the 1980s and hit crisis levels in the 1990s. It's that time period that serves as the backdrop for a new book titled Concrete Rainbow. It's the first novel penned by Ebba Beach native Jason Quinn. His name may be familiar to you. He's released an acclaimed hip-hop album and has had roles on NCIS Hawaii and Magnum P.I. He's also starred in the film Waikiki, which closed the 2020 Hawaii International Film Festival. The Conversations Russell Subiano caught up with Quinn at his home to talk about writing his first book. When did you realize that you had this talent for storytelling? When I was very young, I was able to remember, like some when, when hip-hop first started, I remember that I could remember large chunks. Like, I could remember the song, and I thought it was funny that other people couldn't. Like, I didn't know. Like, they'd be like, oh, have you? I'd be like, hey, have you heard that song? And then I would say it and then they would they'd be like wow how'd you do that and i was like well it's been playing on the radio every hour for <laughs> you know what i mean i'm like and it was a knack it was a, an ability to just remember like huge chunks and then i would read stories and i could if somebody told me a story i could remember the whole thing and tell it the same way if i had heard a story being told or if something had happened i could remember it and then as i read more i i found out that in a lot of cultures the storytellers or the shaman, they had audiographic memories. It's almost like a photographic memory, except it's an audiographic memory. So if you hear something, you can remember it almost verbatim. And I was like, wow, if I have the ability to do that, I might as well use it. <laughs> and one thing led to another. And it, it's it's just an awesome thing to be able to to tell a story and then to be able to find out what is important about a story and how does it help people. Like if you if you craft a good story, it should have wisdom in it. It should have things that help people in it. And that's a way to sort of have a reciprocatory relationship with everybody. Yeah, that's a very unique beginning. I don't think I've heard that story from anyone else. <laughs> and your your book, Concrete Rainbow, is your first book. And with all that you've accomplished in other areas of storytelling, what led you to write a novel? Is this something that you've been wanting to do for a while? Yeah, I think as an artist, that is sort of the Mount Kilimanjaro, right? That's the big challenge is to be able to try to write a novel. But I definitely didn't do it for that reason. I never, it just seemed completely unsurmountable. I've written a lot of short stories. I've written a lot of shorter novels. And I've written a lot of topics that are not so hard to, to turn into a narrative. And I want to tell you, you know, we've been, I've been talking about the book a little bit. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine and it's like, I want to say, oh, I wanted to craft a story that was like this, or I wanted to craft a story that was like that. But truth be told, the main character's voice, mostly Byron, the, the main protagonist in the story, the dude got into my head and he wouldn't shut up. He, he wouldn't shut up. And he was telling me all of the stories. And, you know, maybe on a subconscious level, it was the ghosts of a lot of friends that I had growing up, a lot of wrong turns that were being made. And a lot of people that were lost in my past, it was a way to sort of tell their story. And maybe that was haunting me because I had no choice. I had no choice. I, I tried not to, I didn't want to spend years writing something that I didn't know would even finish or go somewhere. Yeah. I didn't want to, but I couldn't sleep. And it haunted me until I finished. Were there other obstacles or challenges that you had to overcome that were unique to the book writing process? You've released a hip hop album I know you've directed at least one film and, and you've acted in, in several projects and each one of those avenues kind of has its own challenges that you have to learn to overcome in the process. What, what was unique about the book writing process? Unique uh, in the sense of the challenges. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
there were two key things. And I think they're both tied together. And it was most forms of storytelling are collaborative. You know, when you're making a movie or you're making a play or you're making it's collaborative, you may have the seed of the idea on your own. But as soon as that seed is in the soil, you have all of these people coming to lend their talents, lend their opinions, lend their creative ideas to the process. And you're not alone. You're vibing off that energy and it creates a momentum on its own. This was very lonely. The solitude was was almost there was nobody to bounce it off of. You, you can have somebody read it, but they don't know where you're going and you're by yourself. And so you're you're tackling your own ego, you're tackling your own fears and doubts, and it's horrifying. And I hope I never have to do it again. <laughs> your book does feel very personal. It does feel like these are experiences that you might have gone through. It certainly mirrors a lot of experiences I had growing up in Hawaii. I know it's a novel, but how much is based on your own experience growing up? Uh, a lot of it is. I was telling you that I was sort of haunted by the voice, and I kind of made a deal with the voice to try to get him to shut up. I said, listen, I'll, I'll tell the story, and I will give you my life. I will give you my life for the setting. I will give you my life for the time period. I will give you family members and friends. I will take two or three friends and put them together into one character for help for plot devices. I'll take care of this whole narrative. If you be honest, whatever the voice is, whatever the haunting thing that is haunting me, if you be honest, and if this isn't about creating some fanciful story so that you can sound cool, if we can get to the root of a lot of these problems and start trying to answer universal questions that maybe will help somebody if they were to read it, help them out of these demons, help them conquer their own demons. If we can do that, then I'll give you everything. And so I give everything to the story. You know, people who know me will be reading it and be like, hey, isn't that so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, it was based on so-and-so. You know, hey, I remember when that happened, when they flipped over the bus, Wapahu and Campbell and they, the game, and they flipped over the school bus. I remember when that happened. You know, a lot of the events happened. A lot of everything was taken from my experiences. Your story is set during the meth epidemic of the 1990s. Why did you choose to set your story there? You know, I had left in 1997, 98, and I went to New York City and I lived my life. I went to Los Angeles and when my son was born, I brought him back and everything had changed and there was no mention of it. There was no mention of the people. There was no mention of the epidemic that had happened and it had changed people's lives. It had, it had scarred people's lives. It had changed people's trajectories and nobody was telling that story. And when you look it up, when you Google, you know, meth epidemic in Hawaii in the 90s and stuff, you get a paragraph here, a paragraph there. And I was in shock because for us, you know, when you grow up here, you know, these people and you know that this happened and you and you question it. And so I thought that it was a way to return and a way to look at it in a, a very humanized way. If you're looking at it through the eyes of a 15 year old boy, you're looking at it in a very humanized way. And we as an adults, when we read this book, you can be like, why weren't we tackling this? Why weren't we educating ourselves on methamphetamines so that these kids weren't? Because for us, you know, you didn't know what it was. And so when the uh, Green Harvest, Operation Green Harvest burned all the marijuana fields and the D.A.R.E. program burned all the marijuana fields, everybody smoked weed. Everybody knew what weed was. And weed was this sort of benign drug that everybody would participate in. Everybody was illegal, but everybody participated in it. And so when that disappeared, there was no education about how much more dangerous this methamphetamine was. So a lot of people were just like, oh, well, I'll smoke this. I'll take a hit. I'll see if I like it or not or whatever. But it only takes one or two hits before you're you're in there and you're going into this down this wrong road. And that happened to so many people. And now it's just glossed over and it's glossed over for a reason. Hawaii doesn't isn't supposed to be that place. We make a lot of money by projecting Hawaii as a paradise. And that's the last thing anybody wants to hear about these drug issues and these epidemics. So there's a reason why it was painted over and I can understand the logic behind it, but I just thought that it was bad and I, I wanted to do something about it. And so I definitely knew that I would have to set my characters back in the beginnings of that epidemic. You know, many point to fentanyl as the driver behind increased drug overdoses in our islands. But the numbers still show that meth is the number one reason. Why do you think meth continues to impact our islands this way? There's two questions. The easiest one is that meth is 
one of the most highly addictive substances ever created. It's it's one or two hits. It really is one or two hits. When I was back in the times that the book takes place, I hit it once and I'll still wake up. This is 30, 40 years ago. I'll still wake up with the taste in my mouth and, and dreaming of it. And to be honest, the high ain't that good either. <laughs> so it's not like it's so much fun. It's not like it's not one of the funner drugs, you know what I mean? But it but the the addiction quality to it is ridiculous. And I was researching on why that is. And it's the way that is uh, delivered to your dopamine system and the way that that drops and the biological reasons for that. But the underlying problem behind methamphetamine is, you know, when you give lab rats cocaine or methamphetamine and they hit it over and over again until they die and they choose it over food and they choose it over that that's only in that clinical setting because if that rat has its family and has its unit and it's it, it won't go back to it so there's an underlining issue as to our sense of purpose and our sense of community that is that is not being able to surround this issue and all of our kumus and all of our elders being able to have that generational connection can come around and sort of give everybody a purpose and make everybody feel loved and feel, I know I'm going off into the hippie land, but it really is about family and love and purpose. That is going to be the only way that we're going to be able to attack this because it's not like you can just take the drug away because it'll be replaced by another drug like fentanyl or cocaine, because the, the, the drug is a way to treat a problem. And the problem is actually our communities aren't as strong as they need to be. And speaking of Ohana and your inner circle and your community, on your website, you say Ohana saved you from a life of unfulfilled potential. You also say that after you and your wife spent 10 years chasing your dreams across New York and L.A., Ohana inspired you to move back to Hawaii with your son. What is it about Ohana, about family, that has made such a huge impact on your life? Uh, See, I just got goosebumps. (laughs) I got goosebumps when you said that. There's nothing else. And we can convince ourselves that there's something else and that there's other things more important or to go chase, but there's there's nothing else. And it really was my son being born that led me to be a person who can actually see that. I don't know what it is about the island in particular. I think that the island has something and maybe it's a lifestyle, you know, whatever it is about Hawaii that we have, I think that we should cherish it and we need to really look at it because if we could figure out what it is, this main ingredient that we have here and spread it around, then we could help a lot of people. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jason. It was great, Russell. Good to meet you, brother. And that was actor and author Jason Quinn talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about his new book, Concrete Rainbow. We'll have links to where you can find it on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Aloha. Join me, Francis Lamb, for a live taping of The Splendid Table on January 18th at the Hawaii Theater in Honolulu. I'll be talking with leaders from Fujia, Hawaii, Sweetland Farm, and Zippies about how their legacy businesses are shaping a more resilient Hawaii. Get your tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Hope to see you there. Co-presented by HPR and the Culinary Institute of the Pacific. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. A web exhibit entitled From Mauka to Makai, Changing Landscapes on Lanai, takes visitors on a virtual journey. It starts in Koele, the once bustling ranching community, and it uses oral histories and historic photos to tell the stories about the impact of cattle, pineapple, and tourism on the island. The Lanai Culture and Heritage Center debuted the online free exhibit last month. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with the center's executive director, Shelley Preza, who can trace her family's lineage on the island back decades. It's our second virtual exhibit ever. So our first one came out in September, and that was kind of honoring the plantation history because 2022 was the centennial since James Dole purchased the island and kind of initiated the plantation here. So we wanted to end December 2022 with a look at the changing landscapes of Lanai. How that came about is really kind of looking back at 
our motto and our vision. So our motto of the Lenape Culture and Heritage Center is honoring the past, enriching the future. And we really feel that in order to create a kind of more informed, conscientious decisions for where we want our community and our people to go into the future, we have to have knowledge of where we come from and, you know, who we come from. And so this was a way of trying to share some of that knowledge with people who are interested. And the vision of the Culture Center is inherently tied to this exhibit in particular. It's Ola Ka'aina, Ola Ke Kanaka, Ola Ke Kaya'ulu, which translates to thriving land, thriving people, thriving community. And that's our overarching vision for everything we do. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of people think we're just a museum, but that's just one facet of our operations. We do take care of our robust archival collections. We believe that the land and the people in our community are inherently tied. And so I see natural resource conservation work as inherently cultural preservation and a part of what we do. And so a lot of our educational outreach programs reconnect people back to Aina and taking care and restoring health to our landscape. We have a community stewardship program that removes invasive ungulates from the eastern side of Lanai as part of that stewardship effort that we're doing. And so this exhibit kind of is just a part of us working towards that vision of thriving landscape, thriving people, thriving community, because all of those are inherently interconnected. If you don't have a healthy landscape, then your people won't be healthy, your, your community won't be. And so that's really something we're striving to reach. Going back to our motto, you know, we have to know where we come from in order to pave a better way for the future. And so I think this exhibit was a way of kind of exploring and acknowledging different parts of our history that have impacted how Lanai came to be today. And then also realizing that there's a really a deep relationship between people and place. And that's, you know, wherever you're from, that's not just if you're from Lanai, if you're from Hawaii, you know, we all have an impact on our environment. And so that can be positive or negative. And I think we all want to leave a positive legacy for the places that we come from, the places that we live. This exhibit is hoping to remind folks that we have a shared kuleana, which is both a responsibility and a privilege to know the places we come from or where we live and to try to leave it better than, you know, when we're here. And so that's kind of the overarching mission of the center. And this exhibit is just one facet of that. I was on the website and you start with 1.5 million years ago. <laughs> but, yes. you know, really giving us a sense of Lanai was here already, right? Mm -hmm. And then circa 1200 when the first Hawaiian settlers were here. And what I grew up learning in school really was more plantation. I mean, my brother would go there for track meets when it was still like the pineapple aisle. Right? Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, it's cool because I feel like there are a lot of people who have connections to Lanai in that way when it was a plantation community. And it's actually interesting because where everyone lives now, Lanai City, that was actually built because of the plantation. And so this community that was formed, I think when you mention, you know, learning about Lanai just in terms of the plantation, I think a lot of folks only learn about it in terms of the economic aspects that were happening, you know, back then, but it kind of misses the lived experiences of Lanai people. And so that's something that we tried to highlight as well as there was this vibrant community that was formed then. And I think a lot of people have memories. I mean, like your brother coming here for a track meet or, you know, people have memories of coming to Lanai to work in the summer is when it was plantation. And that's actually a part of this exhibit as well is looking at how Lanai has been shaped by different industries, but also this interaction between people and place. And so one section of the exhibit does look at the extensive pineapple fields, the sprawling rows and rows of pineapple as far as the eye can see. And for me, that's really special to kind of learn about because I'm descended not only from the native people of Lanai, but also from immigrants who came during the plantation era. So to be able to learn about that history that time was over by the time I was born. There was, you know, the last harvest had already been done. There was no pineapple growing on Lanai, basically, to be able to kind of connect to my past, my own past, and my family's history. I think my grandmother, she is probably one of the last Korean plantation era folks still alive. She's 92 this year. <laughs> so really special to be able to spend time with her and learn from her. And I grew up here. It's it's such a special place to be. It's very close-knit community. Everybody knows each other. And it was just a great childhood. And I think once I started to see more of the world, you know, when I was traveling a bit in college, there's beautiful places out there, but I feel like there's no place as special as Lanai. Part of it because I have roots here, but I think just objectively Lanai is a really special, beautiful place. And there's something about it that just captures people, I 
I think since I've been home and, you know, talking to people who've just visited for the day or who, you know, were here 50 years ago for the summer working in the fields, there's just something about this island that just stays with people. So I think it's been really great to be back and, you know, trying to serve the community and try to preserve the history that we do have. Being an island state, I think we do value coming out of different cultures, looking at what you and your community are able to do to say, we're going to put together this cultural center, historic center to be a repository for not only the pictures, but also the history. And to Mm -hmm. share that, like you said, it's very important that the next generation have access to this information. We've had great, um, something that we did, and I think a lot of people did after COVID is try to be more active online in not only our website, but also through Instagram and Facebook. And so we've actually begun posting clips of those videos that we have on YouTube, like the oral histories or talking about, you know, the different Bahipana, the storied places on the night to our social media. And I think that's given people another avenue to kind of interact and engage with our history and our culture. And one of the photos actually that's part of the exhibit is of Lupo'e Bay. And you can kind of see this is an iconic beach on Lanai because not only for Lanai people, which is where a lot of people learn how to swim when they grow up, but I think people who visit Lanai, this is probably the beach that they think of. It's very beautiful. And we have historic photos of when it was just a bare beach. There was no hotel on the side. It was just as my parents and grandparents remember, which is, you know, it was kind of there was dirt road to get down there. And, you know, there would, sometimes you would be down there or so they've told me sometimes you'd be down there and you wouldn't see anyone for a whole afternoon. You just have the whole beach to yourself. And we posted a picture of that and of this Keiki pond, which is this kind of large swimming pond that was built in the 1950s by plantation people for kids to be able to swim in. We posted those photos and we had like over 600 people love it. And, you know, for us that you know, we're a small organization. So just seeing people comment about, you know, people who, who grew up here or who, you know, lived here before their memories of Hulupo'e, that's exactly what this exhibit is hoping to inspire in people is just, you know, there's so many memories that people have of Lena'i that I think we're helping to share, you know, and maybe inspire them to just remember their time here on Lena'i and to learn more about our history that it's, it's been really great. I think a remarkable part of this exhibit is, for example, I have it up right now looking at Lanai City. One of the photos that we have of Lanai City is a photo of Dole Park, which is um, kind of the central park in town that everyone knows. There's all the small businesses that are speckled around it. And this photo shows the park in the 1920s when there are small little pine trees. They're maybe only a couple feet high. And if you come here today, those trees are like 100 feet tall. And that's kind of like an iconic part of when people visit Lanai today or in you know the past few decades, that's what they think of when they think of Lanai. But this photo, even though it is not, you know, what Lanai looks like today, people immediately recognize it and have a connection, you know, to that photo because they know that place. That's kind of the beauty of having these photos of places that transcend time. It can still evoke a feeling and a memory for people. And something that we incorporated into this exhibit and our first one are audio clips from Lanai people kind of talking about those places, their own recollections, so that people who might not have the, you know, their own memories can kind of learn and hear our stories. Um, And I think that's really great because I not only for people nowadays to learn, but I'm hoping that, you know, if there are kids in the future that, (laughs) you know, stumble upon our virtual exhibit, they'll have a sense of the fact that we were trying to to maintain this history so that it's accessible to for everybody. So very nice. How how did you get all the oral histories online or uploaded? Was it just labor of love? volunteers. <laughs> yes. So um, these, well, these were, you know, I was very lucky because, you know, when a, a couple of, well, one former board member, another board member um, was willing to kind of talk story with me for this exhibit. I hope we can get more stories. I, I want to do more oral, oral histories with folks in my parents' generation who have that, you know, that recollection of the plantation days. But our former executive director, Kipa Mali, who's uh, now the chairman of our board, he's an amazing ethnographer and he's done tons of oral histories across Hawaii. Um, but we're very fortunate here on Lanai because he took many years of his time to interview a lot of the folks in my grandmother's generation. Fortunate that we have those stories that he's captured from people, you know, some of them are no longer with us. And I think that's so important to hear stories from the people who actually lived in those places and lived those experiences. Because at least for me, that's, I guess, where I found my college education a little lacking. 
I was on the East Coast, which was already a bit of a culture shock. But I think when you read history and textbooks and oftentimes, you know, written by outsiders about Hawaii's history or, you know, places that you know better and the UH Oral History Center, I believe they did some interviews here too, to mm-hmm. talk, um, to interview folks who were involved in the Ko'ele Ranch community. And that's a kind of a, a small section of our exhibit too, is recognizing that even though Ko'ele today is a hotel and that's where, you know, when I was growing up, it was still a hotel, you know, but a lot of Lanai kids don't know that ranching was the longest run industry on Lanai and that was the hub of the community before Lanai City even existed. And so I think being able to explore, you know, those stories from people is so special. But right now our physical space remains closed. We're trying to figure out if there are ways this year that we could be open for limited hours. We have lots of information on our website and the Lanai Guide app. It's actually a free downloadable resource. So anyone can download it if you search up on the App Store or Google Play Lanai Guide. It's a free resource that we developed back in 2016 and we continue to enhance it that basically shares history of place and the stories of Lanaiin. So basically there's also a web-based version. It's not as updated as the app, but there is a map feature where you can actually see different points of interest on Lanai. And if you click on any of those, it'll give you history about that place or Mo'olelo, if there's any traditional stories and history associated with that place, it'll tell you. And we always feel that if people are aware that these places are special to us and special to our history, then they'll try to be more respectful of place. That was uh, HPR's Lillian Song talking with Lanai Culture and Heritage Center Executive Director Shelley Preza. The center continues to expand its archive and welcomes historic or family photographs. Uh, for links to that app or to the virtual exhibit from Malka to Mackay, Changing Landscapes on Lanai, go to the conversation page of our website. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we take you to an abalone farm as we continue to spotlight the varied aquaculture industry in the islands. Uh, Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation uh, online or check out our podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 